Welcome everyone, I'm Vicki Vasiliga, Director of the Section of Clinical Specialists and Scientists here at ASHP, and thanks for tuning in for this episode on COVID-19. COVID-19 has presented many clinical, operational, and educational challenges over the past years. With that in mind, ASHP is sharing insights and lessons learned presented by your peers from the 2021 Mid-Year Clinical Meeting so that you can incorporate these lessons learned into your practice as we all do our part in caring for our patients. Viral response happens early, and then the symptoms either are none or they progress fairly quickly in patients in the first week or two. You know, fortunately, the host response doesn't happen in all patients, but when it does, that's when the patients get critically ill. So it's important to kind of emphasize this early viral response, and then later in care, it's more of the host response, which is why in theory, you know, we knew this relatively early in the pandemic, that, you know, antivirals early makes sort of sense because that's when the viral response is happening. And then sort of the anti-inflammatory, maybe anticoagulation stuff slightly later than, than that when we start having the host response. And so this was kind of like the theory. And so, you know, there was a ton of researchers that decided to get started on things. And I think it's kind of important to kind of stop here and look at the hierarchy of the evidence-based medicine. The early on, we we're looking at case reports, opinion, and then we started getting into case series and cohorts. And very quickly into the scientific community should be commended for the randomized controlled trials that were done so quickly. And now even to the point where we have meta-analysis, which are really looking at the hierarchy for evidence-based medicine. So I will try to point out through this talk where the literature falls on the hierarchy, again, trying to focus mostly on the higher end of things such as the randomized controlled trials and, and meta-analysis. The case scenario is the exact same scenario that Dr. Torbeck had discussed. A couple of key factors here uh, in this case now is that while they're in the ED, they had progressive respiratory failure to the point where they got uh, intubated and then were transferred into the critical care setting. And the C-reactive protein, for example, in this patient was 56 milligrams per liter. So the question I have, which of the following patient populations is given a conditional recommendation regarding the use of remdesivir for the management of COVID-19 according to the IDSA COVID-19 guidelines? Is it one, patient with COVID-19 admitted to the hospital without the need for supplemental oxygen, two, in hospitalized patients with severe COVID-19 with an oxygen requirement, in patients with COVID-19 on invasive mechanical ventilation and or ECMO, or four, outpatients with COVID-19. We'll revisit the answer in a minute, but this is a self-reflection time. So important to that question, it was very specific to the IDSA, but remember there's a Venn diagram of a tremendous amount of societies weighing in on this, particularly in the, in the, on the virals. And so we'll, we'll focus on the NIH, the IDSA, the WHO, and the Society of Critical Care Medicine. But for outpatients, which is obviously not the focus of this talk, at the time of putting these slides together, there was no antivirals for the EUAs for the treatment of COVID-19. However, when you start to get the mild to moderate disease where the patient may have some respiratory dysfunction, but not to the point of needing oxygen, then again, the societies say that they're likely not to benefit and not do not recommend from disaffair. Where the recommendation turns to a yes, both for the NIH, IDSA, and the Society of Critical Care Medicine Surviving Sepsis Campaign is in the patients who have what's quote-unquote severe COVID-19, which are patients who require oxygen. However, but these are not the patients that are mechanically ventilated or on ECMO. Those would be considered to be the critically ill patients. And so the critical COVID, there actually is no antiviral that is has recommended. And as you all know, I'm sure, have lived through this in the past two years, these guideline recommendations have changed a few times. And that's where we stand currently as far as the critical care or severe COVID setting. 
So in this case, the answer would be two in hospitalized patients with severe COVID with an SpO2 of less than 94. So again, going back to the case, you see which of the following therapies is strongly recommended for this patient based on the IDSA guideline for the management of critical illness with COVID-19? Is it one, baricitinib plus dexamethasone, two, dexamethasone plus tocilizumab, three, dexamethasone alone, or four, baricitinib? Remember that it's IDSA and it's a strong recommendation and it goes back to the case scenario. So again, we'll come back to this later in the talk. Again, the same group of folks uh, are weighing in on the guidelines. And so we have the corticosteroid recommendations. We see that the strong recommendation for dexamethasone rather than no dexamethasone for hospitalized patients who are critically ill with COVID-19 with a need for mechanical ventilation or ECMO. So that's a, a strong recommendation from the IDSA. It suggests dexamethasone rather than no dexamethasone for patients with severe COVID-19, but not critical. Conditional recommendation, and again, the remark here is that it would be six milligrams of uh, IV dexamethasone for 10 days or until discharge or, or the equivalent dosing of a different corticosteroid. And again, suggest against the use of corticosteroids for hospitalized patients with non-severe COVID-19. Again, it's going to depend on the level of severity of illness as well as the different guidelines. So here, the NIH recommends dexamethasone for hospitalized patients requiring oxygen, the A1 recommendation. So you see that kind of differs a little bit from the IDSA in that there was a, a conditional recommendation in that, that patient population. The Society of Critical Care Medicine Surviving Sepsis Campaign recommend using a short course of corticosteroids as a strong recommendation for patients with severe or critical. So again, that's strong from the, from the Society of Critical Care Medicine for both severe and critical. And the WHO recommends corticosteroids for patients with severe or critical. So from the observational data early on, we saw that there was an early signal for corticosteroids in COVID-19 ARDS, retrospective and observational data. So, you know, caution was up, but there was an early signal. So then the recovery trial came out with their results and showed that there was an overall mortality benefit with dexamethasone versus placebo with about a 3% reduction in mortality overall. However, when you break down the subgroups, the patients with mechanical ventilation had greater than a 10% reduction in mortality. In patients with oxygen without mechanical ventilation, there was, again, about a 3% reduction in mortality. However, in the patients who did not require any respiratory support at all, the usual care group actually did slightly better. So kind of one of these signals from a randomized controlled trial here that there was an overall benefit in patients with COVID-19 that were hospitalized. However, uh, really more towards the severe or critically ill patient that seemed to have the most benefit. So I wanted to tell a cautionary tale about the influenza pneumonia leading to ARDS, where, you know, we think that in patients with inflammatory response that perhaps corticosteroids would always be helpful. But in this analysis, you could see that early corticosteroids, both in the univariate and more importantly, in the multivariate analysis, showed a, a significant increased risk of death to the point of being five times more likely to have died if you received early corticosteroids in patients with corticosteroids and influenza-associated uh, pneumonia and ARDS. So it's extremely important to not jump to conclusions that, you know, certain therapies, because it's an inflammatory process, will work. And I thought that there was a decent amount of composure by clinicians to stay clear and wait for the evidence 
evidence to come out. It's relatively clear that uh, the corticosteroids do have an array of mechanisms of action for anti-inflammatory effects. And so as we had our COVID patients coming in early on and we're getting these markers, IL-6, IL-1, these things were high in our patients. And so it seemed to make sense that things like corticosteroids would potentially be helpful based off of the mechanism of actions and blocking these tremendous amount of pathways. But again, we had to wait for some of that uh, evidence to come out. In fact, you know, we've had corticosteroids for many, many years for ARDS in general. In fact, the Society of Critical Care Medicine and the European Society of Intensive Care Medicine have guidelines with a conditional recommendation for the use of corticosteroids. But I think that if we all reflect on our current practices for ARDS, I'm not sure if we all follow this. And again, it's a conditional recommendation. And I know that me personally never really felt totally compelled with the evidence, particularly with the hydrocortisone that was typically used for purposes of ARDS early on. And so, you know, perhaps steroids don't work. And so there's actually some observational data, again, below the the standard of a randomized controlled trial or meta-analysis, but there's actually some observational data, even relatively recent, where the control was considered to be, the comparator was the first wave, and the second wave was was the treatment with the steroids. And it was actually, although not significant, a pretty substantial increased risk of mortality in the patients in the second wave, the patients who received corticosteroids. So, you know, there could be a a tremendous amount of uh, differences in this and the observational data, but it's just one of these things that kind of put some caution in our heads that, you know, the steroids aren't necessarily going to be the end-all be-all. And so why do steroids not always work? Well, we know this with us, with ARDS in general is that there, as Dr. Torbeck had mentioned, there are different phenotypes. It's becoming more and more clear that we know that there's hypo-inflammatory phenotype and a hyper-inflammatory phenotype. And the phenotype that have the high markers of inflammation, maybe those are the ones that benefit more from the anti-inflammatory effects of steroids or other immune modulators. We do know that just before the pandemic came out that there was probably one of the best randomized controlled trials in ARDS with steroids, looking at dexamethasone, 20 milligrams. Of note, this is a pretty significantly high dose of dexamethasone compared to some of the studies that we had seen earlier. There's actually a substantial reduction in both increase in ventilator-free days and a reduction in mortality, both statistically significant. So this was starting to get some traction just before the pandemic hit. Now, we know it's with the studies that we've looked at to this point, but six milligrams of dexamethasone was the dose that we had used in COVID-19, and we continue to still use. But there's a decent amount of literature I wanted to point out in the next few slides, even to the point of a randomized controlled trials that actually suggest that perhaps that six milligram dose isn't the end-all be-all. In this Brazilian randomized controlled trial that was being done at the same time as the recovery analysis was stopped early because of the results of the recovery analysis was uh, looking at 20 milligrams versus the standard of care of dexamethasone. So similar to the randomized controlled trial and the non-COVID-19 ARDS, and saw that there was a significant alive ventilator-free days in patients with that high dose. Again, a pretty significant outcome. Another uh, analysis was an Iranian randomized controlled trial in patients that received methoprednisolone of two milligrams per kilogram per day. Now that's a substantially high dose. It's almost an outrageously high dose. And in this case, the comparator was actually dexamethasone, six milligrams. And they looked at all-cause mortality, and you could see that there was a, a pretty wide difference, um, you know, like 15%, say, reduction in mortality, although it did not meet significance. But there was a difference in the nine-point WHO ordinal scale, and the need for invasive mechanical ventilation was massively reduced by about 20%. I'm not sure if two milligrams per kilogram per day of methoprednisone is the answer, but in this randomized controlled trial, you can see that there's some pretty compelling, at least thought-provoking results with a small number of patients. 
Perhaps there's more to the story, right? So a study was looking at uh, one milligram per kilogram of an observational analysis, one milligram per kilogram per day of methoprednisone versus dexamethasone 6 versus the usual care. You can see that the dexamethasone had a lower all-cause mortality than the usual care, but the methoprednisone at one milligram per kilogram per day in the, again, observational data was the lowest numerically. You know, who knows if it's going to be six milligrams forever. There's the, the most recent analysis looked at, there was the six milligrams and there was no significant difference in mortality. So it's one of these things that we'll, we'll find out over the course of time. But also some patients have the inflammatory markers and some don't, phenotypes. And so it's, it's hard to show with all this heterogeneity. So there are other targeted immunotherapies that have been tried in the course of this pandemic, as we all know. Important to note that you know none of these are FDA approved for the management of COVID-19, but many have been studied. I think one important thing is it's important as we talk about the phenotypes of ARDS, but also there's the, the concept that not all viral inflammation is created equal. Even within the coronavirus family, such as SARS, where you see that there's a higher markers of certain interleukins, but they differ when you go to MERS and when you go to SARS-CoV-2. And so the, the, the basic science is kind of suggesting to us that we need to figure out for this specific viral disease that what are the markers for that? And perhaps even some of the variants have different markers as well. We know this through the basic science from CAR T therapies. It's pretty clear through CAR T therapy of what the what the cytochrome release syndrome is very heavy on IL-6. And so the research that was done with this is what needs to be done with the COVID-19 as you move forward into the next era with this pandemic. So how about the other immune modulator recommendations? Well, the IDSA has tocilizumab with a conditional recommendation in patients in addition to steroids rather than the standard of care alone for patients who have elevated systemic inflammatory markers. And of note, they kind of make a note that that elevated marker should be the CRP greater than 75. And if you remember the case scenario we had, the patient's CRP was 56. Again, it's kind of a timing thing. So if you grab that CRP today, and again, you want to get this therapy in as early as possible in, in critical illness, you know, is marker of 56 going up and will be 75 within the next 24, 48 hours, or is it steady? And so rechecking that may be one of the treatments if we're going to stick to that number. Of course, there's baricitinib with the IDSCA recommendations, given a conditional recommendations in two different scenarios. One is in addition to steroids. And one is if patients have contradictions to steroids and they can't use steroids at all. So you actually have two conditional recommendations for baricitinib for patients who are hospitalized, requiring inflammatory marks, but not requiring mechanical ventilation. And the NIH uh, looks at tocilizumab, looking to, to add tocilizumab or baricitinib to dexamethasone for recently hospitalized patients. Again, it's early on in the hospitalization for patients with rapidly increasing oxygen demand in patients who high flow or non-invasive mechanical ventilation, an increased marker of inflammation. They also give recommendations if these become not available, as we know that the drug shortages have, have, have happened. So there's recommendations for other medications that have similar mechanisms of action, but likely don't have the same level of evidence. But what about patients who require invasive mechanical ventilation? This is where the NIH says that would be tocilizumab. So they're kind of making the distinction between tocilizumab and baricitinib here. So what is the tocilizumab clinical trials summary? There have been tremendous amount of randomized controlled trials, again, given the scientific community, a tremendous amount of kudos for this. There's a, unfortunately just a heterogeneity in the trial design, patient outcomes, the timing of tocilizumab, the percentage of patients on steroids, and most importantly, the outcomes. The heterogeneity in the outcomes is kind of interesting. We've had patients who have been 
you know, have done better, have done worse, have done the similar. But uh, the largest randomized controlled trial to date that includes tocilizumab was the recovery analysis. And it suggests a modest mortality benefit with tocilizumab versus the usual care in the patients who had progressive COVID with a CRP greater than 75. So again, it's these patients early in critical care escalating. Our patient, you remember, escalated pretty quickly to mechanical ventilation, but didn't actually meet the CRP cutoffs for these trials. So not to go into all the different studies, but there have been some positive studies with tocilizumab, but there have been a decent amount of neutral and a decent amount of negative as well. So for the baricitinib trial summary, I'll focus on two. Is a COVID barrier study. This was baricitinib in addition to the standard of care. And at this time, the standard of care was the steroids for the most part. So this is really baricitinib in combination. And there was actually no difference of the primary outcome of a portion of patients with progressing to high flow oxygen. But there was an exploratory secondary outcome, which was a decrease in mortality. So again, it wasn't what they set out to find, and they didn't see the difference in that you know, morbidity. But interestingly, they did see the reduction in mortality, and it was statistically significant. So it's one of these COVID-19 pandemic things where we're looking at mortality, we found it, and it was statistically significant. So it's where the guidelines are coming from. The ACT-2 randomized controlled trial was really looking at the baricitinib versus placebo, and so that there was a recovery time from seven to eight days in the control, so a modest reduction in the patients. But, you know, more of the guidelines recommend now are in addition to the steroids. But again, there's probably more to the story, right? If you look at the tocilizumab analysis looking versus the usual care, you see there's a pretty robust reduction in mortality when you look at the patients with a CRP greater than 150. But you actually see, if anything else, the opposite in patients with a CRP where there really was no difference. Um, in fact, numerically higher 90-day uh, mortality in patients with a CRP less than 150. So there's probably something to this where it's the phenotype of whether it's a hyperinflammatory or hypoinflammatory, even with COVID-19, and then what therapies are going to be most effective or not. And just kind of throwing things out because patients seem sick probably isn't the, isn't the best thing, which, you know, again, we learned so much throughout this pandemic. Also important to note is the safety of these immunomodulators. We know for years, the corticosteroids, immune suppression, hyperglycemia, but of course, there's a whole array of other adverse effects associated with corticosteroids. But tocilizumab and baricitinib both have risk of serious infections, including opportunistic infections, hepatotoxicities, and bone marrow. In fact, you know, I've seen patients with all of these adverse effects to both tocilizumab and baricitinib. There's a decent amount of literature coming out looking at some resistant infections that patients are getting once they're getting the, the tremendous amount of these uh, immunomodulators, which I think is the, the concept here is that we want to add them to the right patients with the right criteria early as, as possible, but understanding that there are a tremendous amount of risks. So going back to our case and our question, so to answer this question, which of the following therapies is strongly recommended per the IDSA guideline in the patient, the answer here is dexamethasone alone. Even if the CRP was greater than 75, that would not have been a strong recommendation. It would have been a conditional recommendation, but more likely than not, if a patient had a high CRP, you would add the tocilizumab as well. I also believe there's probably a decent amount of you, including myself, depending on the patient and the situation, that you might have even added tocilizumab to that patient, but just understanding that it was falls it's a little bit outside of the, of the recommendations. So the takeaway, so the antiviral medications for the severely ill patients 
Although many have been studied, only remdesivir currently has a place in the hospitalized patients. But again, it's a select hospitalized patients who have a low oxygen saturation and require supplemental oxygen, but not to the point of mechanical ventilation of ECMO. And the immunomodulator story is very compelling in COVID-19. But again, they're not the end-all be-all. There's cautionary tales and proper dosing in the proper patient still needs to be figured out for the management of severe and critically ill COVID-19. Thank you so much for joining us for this special edition podcast on COVID-19. Be sure to follow us at ASHP Official or wherever you listen to your podcast and check out our COVID-19 Resource Center at ashp.org backslash COVID-19 for the most updated developments on COVID-19. Take care and thank you for all that you do.